0: My best friend has my best
1: friend walks with a tail in the air. Welcome my to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. This episode is one part of my hour-long NPR show heard every Sunday on WLIW FM 88.3, the only NPR station on Long Island where it has broadcast continuously for 14 years. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know, because I care about people who care about cats, dogs, and other creatures who share our planet. I'm also the founder and director of the New York Dog Film Festival and the New York Cat Film Festival, which travel America and Canada, supporting local animal welfare groups. I could not bring you this show without the support of Dr. Elsie's, the privately-owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian who has created a variety of litters to please any cat, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also made possible with the generous sponsorship of Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes in cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. I am very glad to invite back to the show a, a unfortunately frequent visitor. I say unfortunately because Adam Peraskandola is the vice president of the animal rescue team for the Humane Society of the United States and Humane Society International and oversees their rescue efforts. And I wish he was just rescuing dogs and cats from natural events. Unfortunately, the man-made horrors are still out there, and they recently just rescued more than 275 dogs from dog-fighting rings on various properties in South Carolina. Adam, you are always out there, and you fight the good fight, but don't you sometimes wish that these humans could somehow be rechanneled into some other activity? Obviously, you wish that, but does it not depress you? to find acres of dogs chained to trees with open sores starving covered in previous wounds that's just got to be such a hard thing for you to see over and over
0: yeah well thank you Tracy for having me on the show um you know i'm always happy to come on uh and you know it is true that it can be it can be difficult for for all of us you know who who respond to these sorts of situations and you know, I've been in this field now for 25 years, and in some ways it might seem disheartening that, you know, 25 years later, I, you know, I'm still dealing with the same exactly. same situations mm-hmm. and the dog fighting. But, you know, I try to look at it, you know, put it in perspective twenty, twenty five 25 years ago um, when I first started in this field, there was, uh, well, You know, dogfighting was certainly not a felony in in every state and may even not have been quite outlawed in every state at that time. But, um, you know, the uh, there was very little interest, even where it was illegal, from law enforcement. Um, Certainly there is no federal law enforcement. Um, And so I try to, you know, sort of look on the positive side Mm -hmm. in terms of there's tremendous commitment now um, both from local law enforcement and federal law enforcement to you know try to disrupt these dog fighting networks and so even though it seems like and sometimes i think it's it's a perception where we see more and more stories about dog fighting dog fighters being busted and so right. it sort of gives us the per- perception like it's on the rise but it's actually because the enforcement activity is on the rise right? Um, and that really you know I feel like we are making a dent in the dog fighting world unfortunately there are newcomers that come up but every time we do a bust you know we monitor these chat groups and we see that people that you know these dog fighters will some of them will say listen like after another big bust like I'm I'm getting out of the business this is nice. getting too you know too dangerous and Um, So, yeah, so I do believe we are having effect. And I I try to just focus on that, on that positive part of it. That's a really good point. And
1: and over the years in talking to to people at HSUS, uh, one of the things that I think is important that anybody who wants to donate or volunteer or support an animal welfare organization, often HSUS gets painted as, well, you don't have a shelter. You don't have a shelter. You're not taking in dogs off the street. HSUS is quite extraordinary because, as I understand it, single-handedly, <clears throat> the laws are, are in existence and have been brought onto the onto the books because of lobbying by HSUS state by state. So that doesn't happen miraculously. It doesn't happen because some people feel bad about dog fighting. It's because the laws change and there are serious consequences. Was Michael Vick not the first realization maybe the rest of us had that someone could do serious time and pay huge fines, penalties and incarceration even for being a dogfighter. Until that time, I don't think anyone really thought about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I mean, and certainly Michael Vick, um, you know, I think unwittingly uh, right. did more to advance the enforcement of Dogfighting laws than any other individual, right? Because yes. just in the amount of attention that was paid to the case, and um, we really saw a, a heightened interest from law enforcement after the Michael Vick case to you know to get involved in these these issues. And I think you know what was so shocking to so many people was not just I agree, like um, see somebody get um, you know significant penalty, but also. I don't think people a lot of people understood the, the the reality of all of the horrific things that occur in the dog fighting world so when the michael Vick case came out there was a lot of attention paid to the discussions and the that that had gone on um you know involving the electrocution and killing of dogs with car batteries and the drowning of dogs and um you know these are kind of routine practices that are used by dog fighters to cull or which means to kind of um you know get rid of dogs that that they don't think uh have made the cut to become a fighting dog and so i think that that also woke people up to like this isn't just you know uh like two boxers in a ring right, right? like right. you know this is really horrific you know torturous activity that occurs yeah
1: I guess <clears throat> the other thing that's always amazing in the footage that HSUS takes—the videos of you and your teams going into the field and encountering these dogs in these horrific conditions—the thing you always, or your <clears throat> excuse me, your videographers always focus on is the wagging tails. I think it's really important that we all see the the the, the sweetness of these dogs, the willingness to accept humans, even with what's been done to them. And it's why a lot of them, many of them, make great pets and get to go to fosters and rehabbed and and get into homes and make wonderful companions. I don't know how those dogs, given the life they've had with other dogs, how they will do against other dogs, given that they were bred and encouraged to kill each other. But I think those wagging tails is part of the heartening part of the story that despite the horrible life they've led, whether they're young or old and beat up or not, that they still wag their tails. I mean, I see you hugging and and kissing and all your team hugging and kissing these dogs. I'm sure it's the first hug and kiss they ever got, but they they accept it with welcome arms, if you will. Does does that still surprise you in a good way?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, You know, dogs in general are so um, I'm I'm consistently reminded of not just how resilient they are, but how sort of intrinsic now to their genetic makeup, I guess, if you want to call Mm -hmm. it that, Mm -hmm. that bond and that desire Mm -hmm. to bond Mm -hmm. with humans is. So even dogs that come out of very um, difficult circumstances, many of them still seem to retain that desire to bond with humans um also the when when with dog fighting dogs dog fighters like they only want dogs that are um people social right because these dogs have to be handled by multiple people and um so they are they they are not looking for dogs. Occasionally, they'll have a dog that's maybe. Sometimes they'll even have like a German Shepherd or something, like a dog to alert them if somebody's coming to their yard, like almost like a guard dog. Oh, for this interesting. Dog. Um, but the other thing, actually, that we we have found, you know, over you know having now dealt with you know hundreds, if not thousands, of these dogs over the years, um, is that really there's no just there's no telling from these dogs background itself whether they are going to be able to live and peacefully with other uh other dogs we find the majority of these dogs would do fine with other dogs um, really even you know we've had several champions grand champions um that have gone on to live with other dogs or cats or birds or pigs or chickens you know all sorts of animals and Um, the thing is that these dogs are like any dog, they want to please their people. And so when they're, you know, in this situation, it's sort of, uh, it's like a working dog, right? Like they know that their owner wants them to, you know, to fight this other dog. And so they're, they're doing it partly just to, to please their owner. Um, but we've found that a lot of times they, they're perfectly happy being couch potatoes and they have no interest in fighting once you know, once that's not expected of them. That
1: really is a, an amazing shift. Now you mentioned champions and grand champions, and we're not talking about AKC dog shows, obviously. <clears throat> um, talk about this champion and grand champion thing, because those of us who are way outside it and only really know about dog fighting from what we read in the paper or see on the HSUS website when we're going there to people are fearful to watch, but I think we all need to bear witness, not only to the dogs, but also to you guys who are out there doing this heart-stopping work. So I think it's important that we look and that we see it and that we understand what you're doing. But I don't think we know about the hierarchy of dogs that are considered champions and grand champions. Is there an issue both in terms of the value of the dog or the value of the semen or the value of the of the ovaries. I mean, is, is the grand champion and champion something that they then want to breed and there's a value within their closed society for that?
0: Yeah. So there are, um, those are really good questions. And I think there are, um, a number of factors that go into the value of, of a dog, um, certainly a champion. So I'll just clarify that champion is a dog that's won three fights, right? Okay. It doesn't have to be in a row. It's just once they've run three fights, they're a champion. A grand champion is a dog that has won five times undefeated. So they can't have had any losses in that okay. five times. And they're a grand champion. So grand champions are, you know, like a higher value than than champions and, and a much harder, um, you know, sort of place to get to. I mean, one, they have to remain, you know, healthy enough through those five fights. And um, as you know, there can be horrific injuries even to the winners of these fights. So, um, but, the, but yes, that does. So then these grand champions are champions when they're bred, um, they can then, their puppies will sell for, uh, you know, for a higher cost. Also, um, sometimes though, even just the bloodline alone. So a dog that has been bred from a, a very strong champion Blood bloodline. Even if that dog itself has never fought, those puppies can still be um, can still be worth a lot. Um, what does a lot look like,
1: Adam? Numerically, do you know? I mean, nowadays, an, yeah. an average garden variety puppy of any breed is three grand for, for starters. It's unbelievable what's happened in the dog marketplace. But so, what could they be worth?
0: Yeah, I mean. I think that the majority of the dogs are, um, you know, the majority of the dogs are sold in that realm, I would say, like, you know, um, you know, 1500 to 2500 somewhere in there. Um, there are occasionally dogs that go for more. Those are usually adult dogs that are oh, that proven fighters. Proven. They sell for more. Yeah. So yeah. I mean,
1: that in a way, it's sort of like champions in in the American Kennel Club, in the the dog fancy, in the you know, prance around a ring and show your beauty and your confirmation. I mean, those puppies too. I mean, people think, wow, your dog won you know, uh, Cruffs or one in New York City at the Westminster. The puppies aren't really worth that much more because it's not really a money-based industry. It's really the dog fancy is a passion based industry. This one, the killer. Yeah. The killer world is obviously there's a lot of betting money. So I guess there's more money on the table. I mean, just to ask a gruesome question, does an undefeated dog kill the other dog every time or just injure it horrifically or Ew! What's what's the what's the what what constitutes winning?
0: Yeah. So, um, g- generally, I'll try to explain it as <laughs> succinctly as I can. So, um, the, the 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 losing dog does not always die, and the losing dog also is not always. I don't know how to put this. It's not always disgraced. So. Um, a lot of the emphasis for dog fighters is on what they call the gameness of the dog, right? So Mm -hmm. that is the willingness to for the dog to continue to fight. So for example, you know, a dog fighter might brag about their dog who got his leg crushed in a fight or got both front legs crushed in a fight and still was coming forward and attempting to fight. Now that's a dog that that can still have respect, whether he won the fight or not. Yeah. So generally, what happens is that the dogs, um, you know, at some point they will be either separated, or if someone's you know clearly losing, or they will separate the dogs and they put them both on uh, <sighs> separate sides of the ring, and then the dog that that is is losing, they let that dog go and they see if he's going to what they call scratch, which means move forward to fight again. So and they want
1: of, him to do so, that, to fight even though mortally wounded or deadly wounded.
0: Yeah. So, so the, the second thing that happens is like, if it is a dog that has been mauled like that, like uh broken leg, something like that, they still they allow them to do a courtesy scratch, right, so what that means is that the person with the dog that sort of like the winning dog holds that dog on the other side and doesn't let go, and they let the you know the injured dog go and see if he will scratch. They don't let the fight continue at that point, but it's a courtesy scratch because it's just to show, look this dog had both his legs broken and he's still trying to get over there wow. and fight. Um, what a wonderful,
1: what a wonderful yardstick! Uh, and I say that obviously with dripping with sarcasm. <laughs> Adam, we're we're running out of time. I just want to say, the 275 plus dogs who you save now in South Carolina are dogs who will not reproduce, who will not suffer any longer, who live in physically good conditions, and all of their wounds and injuries are being tended to. Their emotional wellness is also being looked after. And it's 275 plus dogs who will not continue this horrific, I guess, Southern habit. I guess it's mostly Southern. I think the work you're doing is great. I think your pluckiness to keep going out there is, is makes you a grand champion. I I really admire your work and that of all your team. And we all owe you a debt of gratitude because you are taking a lot of suffering out of this world and and maybe eventually removing it entirely. Thank you so much for all the great work you're doing at HSUS and continue to do.
0: Well, th- yes, thank you. Thank you, and thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate you bringing this issue to light for your listeners. So,
1: Thanks again, Adam. Thanks for listening. There are a few more very special companies that make this show possible, and I hope you will support their support of my mission to entertain and educate. Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, is still making natural pet food I feed my own dogs. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and free food for the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. Cradle, which makes CBD calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp, formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. My Wanda Weimariner couldn't get through thunderstorms without their cradle melts. Earth Animal, which is privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creates holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition and makes innovative foods like the hybrid dog food Wisdom, which sometimes is all that Maisie Hotchner will eat. Evermore Pet Food, which is privately owned by two extraordinary women who cook dog food from the most pristine human edible ingredients and ship it to your door in frozen pouches, is higher quality and more ethically sourced than my own food. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this shorter version of Dog Talk and Kitties Too, and will listen to other episodes sometime soon.